Okay, this is from the Word, First Samuel chapter 21. Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I've made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly, women have been kept from us, as always, when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day when it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it. For there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Ten thousands? And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see this man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? We are grateful for your word. How wonderful it is that you speak to us today. Even even in a somewhat strange story as we have just heard. You are speaking. Give us ears to hear, Father. Fill up these humble vessels, which we all are, with the power of your spirit, with the mind of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you probably realize that since last week, we've jumped over two and a half chapters in 1 Samuel, and today we land right in the middle of some high drama. This is a desperate time for David. You know he's been or he has now been, most certainly, cast out from Saul's court. He is a fugitive on the run, and the hunt is now on for David. 
So as we look at chapter 21 today, I want to establish the context that surrounds chapter 21, zooming out to the chapters around it. I want to explain the dynamics of what's going on in here because there are some things that are obscured to us if we don't have a deep Jewish understanding uh, and historical understanding of what's going on. And then thirdly, I want finally to taste and see that the Lord is good. So like I said, high drama swirls around David in chapter 21. Last week, chapter 18, you saw Saul look upon David with jealousy and great suspicion, and then that suspicion turns deadly, and twice Saul tries to impale David with a spear. Twice David eludes him. And then Saul sends David to the front lines in battle. Three times he's tried to kill David. And now Saul's secret suspicions have grown into full-blown conspiracy. For in chapter 19, we read these words. Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants, that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on guard. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself, and I will speak to my father about you. Last week, we saw the friendship of David and Jonathan begin. Now we see how deep that friendship goes. For Jonathan approaches Saul, his father, and he's able to talk Saul down, to calm him down, and to get David invited back in to Saul's court. But as soon as Saul sees David, he's again possessed by that jealousy and that hatred, and once more he tries to throw a spear through David. And so David runs out of that room. Somewhere else in Gibeah he flees to. Uh, David has now married Saul's daughter. And Saul's daughter, David's wife, helps David to escape from Gibeah through a rope hanging from a window. And then David runs from Gibeah, the capital city of Israel. He runs from there up to Ramah to where Samuel is. He spends a little bit of time with Samuel. Meanwhile, Jonathan goes to Saul just as he said he would. He wants to reason with his father. He wants to make sure that, that Saul doesn't issue a death warrant against David. But then Saul attempts to spear his own son, Jonathan. He does not want to hear it. And that's an emphatic way to show it. Saul's jealousy and his hatred is quite literally driving him mad. And now he is absolutely determined to kill David. Even his son will not stand in the way. You can see it already happening. People are, be are being forced to choose sides now. Between Saul and David. Two of Saul's David. And so it's going to continue. The disaffected by Saul will find their way to David, especially, especially soldiers that have fought with David. And then in chapter 20, it closes with this very moving scene. David is, is a fugitive. He's got to live his life on the run now. Jonathan, who was loyal to David, He's going to stay with his father. He's going to act as a voice of reason, despite the personal risk. And before their lives 
diverge and they part and they go their separate ways, David and Jonathan have this clandestine meeting. And when they meet each other outside of the walls of Gibeah, they kissed on the cheek. It's like a, a greeting of, of intimacy that's totally copacetic, much like many of the cultures do today. So listen to what happens. They kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. And from that moment forward, David is actively on the run. He is an enemy of the state. And Saul has now effectively issued a death warrant for David. The first place that David runs to after this meeting with Jonathan is to Nob, as we see in our passage. Look at verse 1 of chapter 21. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? If you know your biblical history, then you know that Joshua set up the tabernacle in Shiloh. When Samuel, the prophet, was a young man, though, the Philistines attacked Shiloh. They captured the Ark of the Covenant and carried it away. And since then, the Israelites had relocated the tabernacle, the house of the Lord, in Nob, about a, north, a mile northeast of Jerusalem. And you can see the capital or, or the, the location of the tabernacle moving closer and closer to Jerusalem through this process of history. Well, in chapter 22.10, if you were to just look in the next chapter in your Bible, you'll see that David has come to the tabernacle in Nob to inquire of the Lord. He's seeking God's guidance now that he's on the run. But what the text in chapter 21 doesn't make obvious is that it seems like David has come for another purpose as well. But more on that later. As David approaches the tabernacle, he's greeted by Ahimelech. Though the text only calls Ahimelech a priest, it seems to, to me that he is acting as the de facto high priest. And Ahimelech sees David approaching, he trembles. And it's in a similar manner as to when the elders of Bethlehem trembled when Samuel approached them back in chapter 16. But So David approaches, Ahimelech's trembling, and it's not the fact that David approaches only, it's the fact that David approaches alone. That strikes fear into Ahimelech's heart. Now likely, this is confirmation to Ahimelech. Gibeah, the capital where all of this has gone down between Saul and David, is five miles away, maybe four. News travels fast, and Ahimelech has heard the gossip very likely. And he knows now that David is an enemy of the state, and so his presence puts Ahimelech at great risk if he is to show any support to David. And so the risk is great. He trembles. He trembles knowing what he's about to get into. And as we will see soon, that fear is not unfounded. Look at verses 2 and 3. And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter. 
And he said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I've made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of the bread or whatever is here. So far, in the narrative of David, this is the first time we are seeing David not as a perfect man. Because David is clearly spinning a deception for Ahimelech. David is not on a secret mission from Saul. He is running from Saul. He's a fugitive of Saul. He's lying. But for his lie to work, there needs to be some truth woven into it. David is telling a truth that some of Saul's young men are waiting for him in this undesignated location or undesignated in the text. It's designated for them. They're waiting for David to return to them. Young men here is simply just a term to speak of, of soldiers. Soldiers were primarily young men. So David is traveling with a small band of soldiers, disaffected by Saul, loyal to David, and more and more people we are seeing are beginning to recognize David as the true king of Israel. In the next chapter, you'll see this small band of soldiers swells to 400 men. But David does come to the tabernacle in Nob alone, simultaneously wanting guidance from the Lord and He's also spinning lies to the tabernacle priest. You know, David is, he's been cast rather suddenly from Saul's court. He had to escape out of a window with a rope. And now he's on the run with no provisions. And so it's, it's no surprise at all that David is famished. Verse 4 says, And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us, as always, when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? It's interesting that David asks for five loaves of fish, or five loaves of bread, I just gave that away. Five loaves of bread, and not because of what it reminds us of in the New Testament. (laughs) Five loaves of bread would be more than what David could eat personally, and not enough for a whole band of soldiers. It's almost as if getting the bread is just an incidental objective. He didn't come here for the bread. He sees the bread, and he is certainly hungry in a desperate state, and so he wants some bread. The priest is not an idiot. The priest likely knows what's going on. Gibeah is not far. News travels fast. He's probably heard. But despite this, Ahimelech seems to be comfortable looking beyond the inconsistencies in David's story. You know, he, he, I think he knows David is lying. But he chooses to look beyond it. Even still, he's a priest, and he's a good priest, and he's need, he needs to be careful about what is common or profane, in some of your translations, and what is holy. This priest is careful, rightly, with the commands of, with the commands of Yahweh. In Leviticus 24, verses 5 through 9, 
and a number of other places in Scripture, God describes the nature of the bread of the presence and these rituals that surround it. And Ahimelech says here in verse 6 that every Sabbath, 12 freshly baked loaves were placed on the golden table to sit in the presence of Yahweh for one week. The bread of the presence. This very sacred, holy bread. It was a reminder of manna, for one. When God fed a desperate and dependent Israel as they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and they wandered in that wilderness because they were rebels against God, manna came from the hand of God, from the presence of God, a holy sustenance for an unholy people. Remember that, holy sustenance for an unholy people. Now, Israelites have been dwelling in the promised land for years, hundreds of years. The priests who ate this bread of the presence, they stood as mediators for Israel. They were reminding Israel that they would forever be sustained only by the bread that comes from the presence of God. There is no other bread that sustains the people of God but the bread that comes from God. And all these things and more were baked into the symbolism of the bread of the presence. That's why after having undergone ceremonial cleansing, after the bread was thoroughly sanctified in the presence of God for a week, only could the highest order of priests, the descendants of Aaron, of which Ahimelech is one, only they could remove the bread and eat it. So for David to ask for this bread would have offended most. David did not descend from Aaron. He was not a Levite. He was from the tribe of Judah. It was not lawful for David to eat this bread, and the priest knew it. So when David asks for the bread, Ahimelech immediately becomes cautious. He does not want to violate God's command by treating what is holy as something that is cheap or profane. But he entirely overlooks the fact that Benjamin is from Judah. Doesn't even mention it. Instead, he thinks, okay, he's, he's not a Levite. Is he clean, though? Is he ceremonial clean? And the two most basic rituals for ceremonial cleanliness were washing your body, and clothes included, and then three days of sexual abstinence. Now, again, David's on the run. He's a fugitive, probably looking rather ragged. And he didn't show up at Nob looking freshly washed. Again, Ahimelech appears to overlook this. Instead, he asks about the abstinence. Have they remained pure for that three-day period? And David answers, of course. My men don't touch women when we're on expedition. And how much more that we're on this special mission? How much more clean are we? Ahimelech should have given pause right there, right? Because according to David's story, the, the lie that David's been spinning, he and his men have just left Saul in Gibeah, which is only five miles away, which certainly wouldn't have hoarded them three days of expedition. 
If Ahimelech took David's story seriously, these men, I have no reason to believe these men are consecrated. But Ahimelech is a good man, and he is a true priest, and he again overlooks these inconsistencies to the truth that is obvious to him. And what is the truth that is obvious to him? David is truly hungry. And his men are truly hungry. And like the rest of the Israelites, Ahimelech knows that God is with David. David is God's man. And so he turns over the bread to help this hungry, unofficial king. You see, this priest and David understand something about God's law that's so unique in the Old Testament. Feeding the hungry is more important than upholding ceremony. Meeting human need is a primary desire of God's. And we too should want to meet human need. We don't, we don't need to require people get themselves all cleaned up and put together in order to feast on Christ or to feast on the resources that we have. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus speaks on this exact event in 1 Samuel 21, and he speaks on this idea. He is Lord of the Sabbath, and meeting human need is far more important than ceremony. When you have some time this week, I would really encourage you, read Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Back in our passage, even if David is lying and even if Ahimelech is playing dumb, they seem to have this understanding that is far deeper than words. It's like they're trying to to guard the true nature of their meeting. It's as if there are eyes watching them, suspicious eyes. Indeed. Verse 7, Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. That seems completely random. Doeg the Edomite just plopped into the middle of the narrative. But soon we will see that when we zoom out to the surrounding chapters, there's a very good reason this detail is included We do not know why this Gentile is hanging around the Israelite tabernacle. The Edomites are Gentiles, but his presence is foreboding indeed. More on that very soon. Verse 8, Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none none but that here. And David said, there is none like that. Give it to me. (laughs) David would be such a bad operative to go off on a secret mission without any weapons. I think what we're seeing here is the second main reason that David has come to the tabernacle in Nob. 
More than any other event in David's life, the slaying of Goliath is what has propelled him to prominence. Right? It's what authenticated to Israel that David is God's man. It's almost impossible to think that somebody as prominent, as well-connected as David, with such a vested interest, has lost track of Goliath's sword. He knows exactly where it is. Seems to me, and a number of people who are smarter than me, that after seeking the Lord, David has come to the tabernacle in Nob to seek Goliath's sword. But he doesn't want to take it. That would be a bad look for David. So this entire ruse, seemingly, is to have Goliath's sword freely offered to him. Think about this. Think about how this would work. David's on the run from Saul, and he knows that God has chosen him to be king, that he will replace Saul. And so what better object is there for him to carry than Goliath's sword? That sword would become a powerful weapon of political strategy. One flash of its blade and every Israelite would remember when God used the shepherd boy to slay the Philistine giant. Ahimelech clearly remembers. He says it. And so would every Israelite. Remember that David has a special anointing from Yahweh. I believe this is why Ahimelech appears so eager to fetch the sword for David and give it to him right away. He secretly knows who should be king in Israel. And later, Saul will interpret this act of Ahimelech's as pledging his loyalty to David. For in the next chapter, back in Gibeah, Saul gathers all of his servants, the commanders of his army, and he demands, if anyone knows anything about David, you'd better tell me, or it's not going to go well for you. Guess who steps forward? Doug the Edomite. He tells of David's visit to Nob. He tells of how Ahimelech gave provisions and the sword to David. And so enraged, Saul summons Ahimelech and all the priests of Dom. He brings them to Gibeah. He hears their story, but he doesn't believe it. He thinks Ahimelech has pledged his loyalty to David, and indeed it seems that that is what has happened. And so he tells his guard, kill Ahimelech, kill these priests. The guard won't do it. They won't do it. They know Saul is mad. So Saul commands Doeg to do it. And he does. Doeg kills Ahimelech. He kills 84 other priests. But he doesn't stop there. He then travels that four or five miles down to Nob and he kills the people of Nob. Men, women, children. He even kills their animals. He slaughters everyone. And in all the bloodshed, Saul doesn't say a word. Such is the hatred of Saul and the state of his fallen heart. Ahimelech paid for giving that sword to David. But for now, in chapter 21, 
with Goliath's sword in David's hand, with guidance having been received from the Lord, with some food in his belly, David gathers his crew and he immediately puts further distance between him and Saul. Look at verse 10. And David rose and fled that day from Saul, and he went to Achish, the king of Gath. David flees to Gath. Do you remember Gath? That's the very city that Goliath had come from. And David is carrying the sword with which he beheaded Goliath. That's going to be a helpful implement in summoning Israelite loyalty, but not such a welcome symbol in Goliath's hometown. But indeed, the giant did fall a long time ago. David isn't a boy anymore. He has a beard now, we see. He's a well-established Israelite warrior and a commander with a formidable, formidable reputation. And after years in Saul's court, it's very likely that his network runs deep. And David flees to Gath. I think his thinking is probably, Saul is my enemy. So I'm going to go to Saul's other enemies to provide protection for me, like the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of thinking. But according to the following events, David was hoping to hide out in Gath somewhat anonymously, like Saul isn't going to come looking in Gath, so I can hide here quietly and in secret, but it does not go according to plan. Verse 11. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish the king of Gath. So if David's a well-connected man, then so is the king of, of Gath. And Achish knows what is the gossip of Israel and he knows what or who has captured the hopes of Israel. The people sing of David in the same way they sing of a king. Notice how, notice how the, the servants of Achish recognize David. Not as the giant killer. Not as one of Saul's premier commanders. They recognize him as the king of the land. With greater, greater clarity than Saul, Israel's bitter enemies can see the inevitability of God's plan. For David, yeah, this is an unwanted turn of events. <laughs> His cover's blown, and they know the song, and then they know that David is responsible for the death of countless Philistines. Not a good look. Additionally, if they see David as king, then probably the best Philistine move is to kill this guy and end the war with Israel. Or maybe put him in prison hold, hold, prison, hold him as ransom, and sue for peace. Here in Gath, David's fame might just be his undoing. And so once again, David resorts to deception. A strange deception. Verse 13. So David changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to the servants, Behold, you see this man is, this man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? 
Do I lack a madman that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? <laughs> to avoid imprisonment, or worse, David plays insane. I guess he knew what insane looked like because he does it very convincingly. He convinces Akish that he is indeed a madman. And I think that we can see in this that David is a deeply committed man. Right? He is a all-in kind of guy. He will do just about anything, even if it means burning his reputation to the ground in order to accomplish his purposes, which are God's purposes. David willingly afflicted himself with shame so God's plan would not be hindered. I think that's a powerful realization that David, David willingly afflicted himself with shame to accomplish God's purposes. Of course, the author of 1 Samuel doesn't comment at all on the morality of David's actions. I mean, we know from the Bible that lying, deception, they're, they're forbidden. I mean, thou shalt not lie. One of the Ten Commandments. Scripture might give some allowances for wartime, but regardless, there's no comment on the morality of these things. It's up to us to think through that and wrestle with it. But even if David was deceiving Akish with this false insanity, I can't help but think that as spittle was running down his beard and he was making marks on the wall, that his mumbled and mad ravings were filled with praises and prayers. You know why I think that? Because of Psalm 34. We know that David's mind was not consumed with madness in the halls of Gath, but rather that his mind in this moment is consumed with God. Turn to Psalm 34. There's a heading for Psalm 34 that reads like this. Of David... When he changed his behavior before Ahimelech, so that Abimelech, sorry, so that he drove him out and he went away. Abimelech is another name for Akish. This is a psalm that David wrote in response to his insane deception in Gath. I'm going to read it. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us together exalt, let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and he saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear in him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh children, listen to me. I will teach you to fear I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there? 
What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate righteous, the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This psalm that relates to David's insane deception, this psalm rejoices in God's provision. It is most primarily rejoicing in God's provision in the face of adversity, in the face of affliction, in the face of shame. And Psalm 34 is touching on this theme that runs through all of 1 Samuel 21. Though Yahweh's hand is hidden in all of chapter 21, he is working the entire time. He has been working. He has been providing. Whether or not David is entirely faithful, God is entirely faithful. God provides a way of escape, and he provides guidance for the unwanted, and he provides food for the hungry, and he provides weapons for the battle, and he provides allies in a time of trouble. Yahweh provides Jehovah Jireh through this whole chapter. And Yahweh provides. And in the most powerful, profound way, once and for all, Yahweh has provided us with the bread that has come down from heaven. And Jesus himself said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus has come from the presence of God as the ultimate provision from God for all who will take and eat. There is no ceremony that you need to perform. There is no ritual cleansing that you need to adopt. No. Just stop your running and come to Jesus. Come to have your hunger satisfied in Christ. Simply come to Him and that deep hunger of your soul, He will satisfy David's shame in 1 Samuel 21, it's clouded with deception. It's muddied with lies, but not Christ's, never Christ's. For it is in purity and in truth and in love that Christ humbled himself and he took on our insanity. Do you realize that? The type of insanity that rejects the source of all life and joy, Yahweh, as we chase the the turbulent winds of self-gratification. That's insanity. And one day we will have to give an account for our lives, every one of us. 
And if we have spent that life in insane rebellion against God, then all of our impurity will be fully and entirely exposed before the awesome, overwhelming magnitude of God. The, The deepest core of your being, as you are drowned in your own shame, you will know who is holy and who is profane. But here, even here, standing before Judgment Day, God has made provision. If we come to Him, the bread that has come down from heaven will soak up all of our shame and all of our madness. He already bore that shame when He went to the cross and He died for our rebellion. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Jesus was convicted by the Romans as a rebel, as an enemy of the state. He was killed in the most shameful way that that empire could imagine. In the eyes of that world, as he hung there on the cross with blood running down his beard, he looked like a madman. To many today, he still does. But in that madman's face, we see the King. We see our Lord. We see our Savior, our bread from heaven. And we come to Him. And there is no reason anymore for shame, for we have been reconciled to God and we don't need to, be, we don't need to run, for we have been forgiven. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ has brought us to God. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Christ has taken our shame, forgiven us of our rebellion, gives us our daily bread, and now he floods us with abounding life everlasting. Now, David was an imperfect king. Jesus is the perfect, soul-satisfying, eternal king. Let's read a little bit of what Peter says about his king. So put away all malice, all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. He's quoting Psalm 34, 8. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Father God, we thank you for this awesome provision that you have given to us in Jesus Christ. And that this story of David entirely points us to the glory of your provision, the bread that has come down from heaven. How your word speaks, how magnificent it is. We thank you. Father, our good Father, we love you.
In Christ's name, amen.